Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. I'm Charity Nebbe. You're listening to an archive edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. Pretty much every person who has ever had a job knows what it feels like to feel stressed or frustrated at work. But burnout is something else. It's far more serious. Burnout is bad for individuals and for the companies they work for. And it seems to be at an all-time high right now. Today, we're going to learn about burnout, some of the organizational problems that lead to burnout, and how organizations can do better. Stephen Courtright is Henry B. Tippy, Research Professor and Director of Executive Education at the Tippy College of Business at the University of Iowa. He'll be teaching a virtual masterclass on recognizing and addressing job burnout on Wednesday from noon to one through the Tippy College of Business, which is an underwriter of Iowa Public Radio. Stephen, welcome. Thank you very much. Ian Crawford is also here, Associate Professor of Management and Entrepreneurship at the Tippy College of Business at the University of Iowa. He recently published a study on burnout in the Journal of Organizational Science. Ian, welcome. Glad to be here. And Stephen, I'm going to let you start us off. Uh, I guess when we hear the term burnout, I think a lot of us sort of instinctively know what we're talking about. But let's break it down. Really, what is burnout? Yeah, so when we think about burnout, there's a couple of ways to think about it. I think we can think about it in terms of symptoms. And we can think about it in terms of what's really causing the symptoms. So if you just look at the symptoms, really what the research shows on this is there's three major symptoms of burnout. One is feelings of emotional exhaustion. So that is beyond just the, I feel tired, but I feel almost uh, incapable of operating because uh, emotionally I'm just so depleted. And so that's kind of the core symptom of burnout. But in addition to that, Another symptom of burnout is that we feel really cynical about work. We feel cynical about the people that we work with, cynical about the people that we serve at our work. And then we just feel this sense of loss of like this professional confidence and efficacy that we have. And so those are the major symptoms. And so one of the things we can figure out is when we're trying to figure out if we're burned out is do we exhibit any of those symptoms? But underneath those, those symptoms, there's something entirely else going on, not entirely else, but related that's causing those symptoms. Um, and so the way to think about this and is how it does, as you mentioned, differ from ordinary stress. And in ordinary stress, it can have positive effects and it can have negative effects. We can feel stressful because of a deadline or we can feel stressful because of a new challenge. And that can have some real motivational benefits to it. Um, but when it comes to burnout, the way that we define burnout is that the demands we face at work or just in life in general essentially on a more chronic level, exceed the psychological resources that we have to address those demands. With those psychological resources being quite broad, but the way I kind of think about it is coalescing around kind of three major psychological resources, our efficacy or our confidence at work, the amount of social support uh, that we have to be able to draw on, and then just the feeling that we have some level of control over our lives or autonomy in our lives too. And whenever those demands, again, exceed those resources on a more chronic level, that underlies the symptoms that I mentioned earlier. 
Well, and I can imagine that for a lot of people, burnout is wrapped up with other mental health challenges, because if you're feeling this way all the time, I'm sure that can trigger a depressive episode and and things like that. So today we're focusing on burnout specifically, not on those other mental health challenges. But we do seem to be experiencing this at an all time high right now. It's it's always been a problem, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've been talking about burnout in the research literature for 50 years. And so, I mean, you know, since the early 70s, we've had ways to measure burnout. We've been looking at burnout across a variety of industries. It's not a new phenomenon. It just seems to have really hit a really acute level, particularly during the last two years. Um, and so we are having uh, really rampant levels of burnout, um, which can be expected given everything in the last two years and given a lot of different changes. Changes, um, and just a whole host of different things, which is a whole other kind of conversation in terms of what might be causing some of the acute levels of burnout. But, you know, you mentioned that burnout can be wrapped up with some of the, you know, more like mental health kinds of things, right? Depress depression and things of that nature. And it's always hard to know what's the chicken and the egg. There's burnout causing the depression. Is depression contributing to some of the burnout? But I think the astounding thing we've discovered about burnout is that it also has physical implications too. So if you look at the research, there is greater risk of heart disease. There's more psychosomatic uh, health complaints. And so when organizations are thinking about burnout, it's not just a, a matter of keeping our people happy. It's a matter of reducing costs, really. The amount of healthcare costs incurred by organizations just, for help, just because of the effects of burnout is really, really astounding. And so, yeah, it's very much wrapped up into our physical, uh, you know, our, our, our physical health as well. And of course, we're experiencing the great resignation right now. So a lot of people are changing jobs. And some of that may have to do with burnout. Some of that may have to do with many, many other things as well. But when we're talking about job turnover, Ian, you recently published a study about employees with proactive approaches and employee turnover. I mean, first, employee turnover is extremely expensive for companies, right? Yeah, let me just put this in context. Um, so prior to the pandemic, the World Economic Forum estimated that burnout was already costing employers about, about $322 billion per year in turnover and in lower productivity. And it's hard to grasp just how much that is. But to put it in perspective, if you had $322 billion in a stack of $100 bills, that stack would reach from the surface of the earth to the International Space Station, 205 miles high in orbit. So it's- um, A lot of money. <laughs> and, it's, and it's probably much worse now. This is prior to everything we've been through. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we did a study uh, that we completed actually prior to the pandemic itself, but academic publishing takes a long time. And so it just came out in the organization science. And um, we were curious about how employees respond to these stressors in the workplace, the presence of these chronic, chronic stress. And, and Steve's exactly right about there being different types of stress in the workplace. Not all stress is bad. Some comes from challenges that present opportunities for growth and learning and accomplishment and even rewards and promotion and you know things like having job responsibility and complex tasks. And and there's the other stress from the hindrances in the workplace that will thwart or impede or block your progress and accomplishment. 
things like having the wrong equipment or broken equipment or having insufficient resources or administrative hassles or red tape or office politics or conflicting or unclear instructions from your supervisor, conflicts and disputes with coworkers, all kinds of hindrances. And we've known that um, people respond generally positively to these challenges and generally negatively to these hindrances. Um, but I had a doctoral student, Jordan Nielsen, who's now a professor at Purdue University, who wondered about proactive people in particular and how do they respond. And, and proactive people, let's let's define them. I mean, they're the people you really want in your organization, right? Yeah, right. These are the people who will typically take initiative without being asked. They will jump in and get things done. They um, generally will be more productive. Uh, research has shown they also tend to be more creative. So people generally think of their proactive employees as their most valuable employees. An assumption we make about proactive people is that they will just persist through any challenge or obstacle. They'll overcome no matter what the odds are. And we wondered about that. So we set out to test this and we got access to um, a sample of architects. Uh, Jordan had a contact with the Iowa chapter of the American Institute of Architects. And this is an industry known for work that's often filled with frustrations, you know, things like zoning regulations and con construction limitations and picky clients who keep changing orders last minute and whatnot. Anyway, we surveyed more than 250 of them over the course of a month about their stress that they experienced at work and what their general work experiences were. We had them take a personality assessment to assess their proactive tendencies. And then they talked about the challenges and obstacles they faced and the perceptions they felt of how supportive their firm was and ultimately about their burnout and their thoughts of turnover and quitting. And then we tracked them over the next two and a half years to see who actually stayed with the firm and who left. Now, we weren't that surprised when we learned that the proactive employees responded much better to the big challenges in their workplace demands. They had greater tendency to view those challenges as opportunities that the organization was providing for them. They felt supported, that they could learn and grow. And even though it was still challenging to work on those stresses, they found it much less exhausting and were much less likely to think of quitting. What we were surprised to find was that those same proactive architects responded much worse to the hindering workplace obstacles. Instead of just persisting and overcoming, they were actually more likely to see that as a lack of support from their firm. And that led to even more exhaustion and more consistent thoughts of quitting. And ultimately, over two and a half years down the road, they were the ones that more often had left that employer to go work for another firm. So to, to sum up, you found that the employees that a, an organization would probably consider to be most desirable were the most likely to quit because of these obstacles that, that the organization itself was putting in their way. Yeah, it, it really is a double whammy. You think about having these obstacles that in general are promoting turnover, but in this case, you're also losing your most valuable employees. And so, yeah, it, it really um, can be detrimental to firms trying to keep their best and most productive employees. All right. And, and in a couple of minutes, we're going to break down what some of those obstacles might be. And Stephen, I know you have a lot of thoughts on, on how organizations can reduce those obstacles as well. But Ian, so the other upshot of this is that the employees who were most likely to stay 
were the employees that the organization probably least wanted to stay? Well, yes, that is an implication of the study. I mean, I could go to bat for those employees. You might say, well, there are less proactive employees, but there is a benefit in having loyal employees who stay. They're repositories of organizational and institutional memory, and having some longevity is helpful there. But yeah, it does it does hurt to lose those most proactive employees, and especially in a um, economic environment and an employment environment right now where every firm is competing so stiffly for talent um, that it, it's just one of the simple things that firms could pay attention to is what are the obstacles in our employees' way and how can we get rid of them? And we will talk more about that in just a moment. I'm talking with Ian Crawford, Associate Professor of Management and Entrepreneurship at the Tippie College of Business at the University of Iowa. Stephen Courtright is also here, Henry B. Tippie, Research Professor and Director of Executive Education at the Tippie College of Business. We're talking about burnout, and we will continue our conversation in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. I'm Charity Nebbe, and this is an archive edition of Talk of Iowa. This hour, we are talking about burnout, that feeling of being overwhelmed, emotionally exhausted, unmotivated. It's a huge problem for individuals and for organizations, and we seem to be experiencing it at an all-time high. The pandemic seems to have triggered this in a lot of individuals. So, of course, organizations and individuals are trying to fight back, and we're learning about burnout this hour with Stephen Courtright. Henry B. Tippy, Research Professor and Director of Executive Education at the Tippy College of Business at the University of Iowa. He'll be teaching a virtual masterclass on recognizing and addressing job burnout on Wednesday from noon to one through the Tippy College of Business. Ian Crawford is also here, Associate Professor of Management and Entrepreneurship at the Tippy College of Business. He recently published a study on burnout in the Journal of Organizational Science. So uh, let's talk about some of the obstacles that organizations put in the way of their employees. I mean, Ian, just before the break, we were talking about how your research found that proactive employees, the people who are most likely to take initiative and rise to new challenges, are actually less likely to stay in an organization that has a lot of these obstacles. That leads to burnout among the employees that these organizations probably most want to keep. And you specifically are talking about architects, but I'm pretty sure that this <laughs> applies in many, many other fields as well. So uh, Ian, you can start, and, and Stephen, I'm sure you have some to chime in with here, but let's talk about some of those obstacles, the kinds of things that, that employees find so frustrating. Yeah, I mean, think at a basic level of just not having the resources you need to get your job done. That probably comes to the top of the list. So just not having the right equipment that you need um, or having equipment that doesn't work 
um, you know, I always say you need to have the right tools to do the job. And that applies in yard work and construction and office work altogether. Um, and so uh, having those type of right equipment, then there's categories of uh, hassles that are things like red tape, a lot of administrative hurdles, things that aren't clear as to why they have to be done. Just they've always been done that way without ever thinking, is this actually working for us or not? Um, so those types of red tape. And then a lot of it has to do with uh, relationships with supervisors, for example, having unclear conflicting instructions or conflicts or disputes with coworkers. Not all conflict is bad. Um, disagreements about you know how to get work done or different ideas for how to solve problems. Those are good conflicts to have. But the more personality type of conflicts where you just don't get along with each other, don't like each other, rub each other the wrong way or offend each other, those can be big frustrations and hassles. Um, and then, you know, just the general office politics, whether it's, um, you know, how people are trying to jockey for position or power in an organization, those can be really frustrating as well. But I will say this, they can differ across organizations as well. And managers just may not even be aware of what some of these are. And so, you know, one of the number one tips I would give to a manager is to realize that, you know, supporting your employees isn't necessarily about adding things or providing more things like perks and benefits. Like those are great, of course. But to start, I would tell managers, think of what you can subtract for your employees. And if you don't know, just ask them. Like if I were a manager, I would be walking around to my employees, asking them what is getting in your way and how can I get rid of it? And then listen, you learn of things that you can get rid of, obstacles you can remove, remove them. So you're talking about big stuff, but it can also be small stuff like parking, for example. Oh, totally. Having a predictable place to park. Um, there are other super simple things that um, managers could do. For example, think of the emails that you send to your employees that leave them guessing. For example, if you're a manager that says in a short, quick email to an employee, we need to talk. How about next Thursday? You've just left your employee five days to wonder what on earth does my manager want to talk to me about? And all of the horrible ideas and distractions and worries start coming into your mind. And suddenly your anxiety and stress has increased for no apparent reason other than your manager just wasn't clear. And if the manager had emailed instead, I'd like to talk with you about your request to have Fridays off. Can we meet on Thursday? Just that tiny increase in clarity can be a reduction in that type of frustrating hindrance stress right. that you just don't need. It may not be good. <laughs> I'd still yeah. worry about that, I think. <laughs> but at least, at least not... you know what it's about. Right, exactly. Stephen, what do you want to add when you think about these obstacles that organizations are putting in their employees' way? Yeah, I love Ian's suggestions about managers really asking their employees about what can we subtract that's getting the way in the way of accomplishing your goals. I think one of the things that managers oftentimes have a misconception of is that managing burnout means that people just can't take any more work. They just need everything off their plates. And I think one of the implications of the literature and especially of Ian's study is that it's not just about taking away work. In fact, there's been other studies to show that not having enough to do is more stressful than having too much to do. Um, and so 
it's it's really about taking away the things that are hindering goal accomplishment. And so that's where that's that's where managers can really frame the discussion around is what is hindering you from accomplishing your goals at work and then subtracting the right things rather than just subtracting everything. And so um, that's one thing I think that really comes again from Ian's study and from and from just the broader literature also on burnout. How does an organization figure out what those things are? Because if if you've got a lot of those and your employees are frustrated and you're having a lot of turnover, you may not also have the clarity <laughs> to know what's going on in your organization that is causing these problems, right? Well, and managers can sometimes be caught between a rock and a hard place in this way. Some of the things are uh, some of the, some of the hindrances that Ian referred to are things that managers can resolve pretty easily. But there's other things that are more organizational uh, that sometimes just get passed on to managers, and the burden of having to help their employees deal with it are kind of on the shoulders of managers. And so sometimes this just requires dialogue with the employees in terms of what the manager can control and what the manager can't control. But none of the information can be gathered. Nothing can really be done until we really ask the question, until we really start getting at it. And that's oftentimes where organizations stop. And so Ian's completely right that a lot of times organizations just add more and more and more thinking that will solve the burnout instead of really opening a dialogue with employees. So everything starts with that dialogue. And the managers, again, have to just be clear about what they can control, what they can't control, but really be careful about the the distinction between the two and how they communicate those with employees. Yeah, and if I could add to that, um, I, I think that's a really important distinction. And when you discover what you can control, take control and remove those obstacles. And for those that can't be easily removed, um, you can help mitigate frustration with your employees by helping to manage expectations, like simple things where you acknowledge, yeah, this is how things are for now, unfortunately and validate their frustrations, empathize with your employees that I totally agree with how you feel, and then talk about longer-term plans for how we can remove obstacles and work together to build those plans. I also think when you ask, you know, how do companies even learn what is frustrating their employees? This dialogue can be structured as simply as the manager has a check-in with their employees once a week, once a month, and just says, hey, between now and the next time we talk, Would you just keep a running list on a piece of paper of the top five things that are most frustrating for you and add to that list? What are the five things where you'd like a little bit more control and autonomy? And you learn of areas where you can take away frustrations and areas where you can give a little bit more of that autonomy and that balance of adding autonomy and taking away obstacles that can work wonders. We are talking about burnout this hour. Ian Crawford and Stephen Courtright of the Tippy College of Business at the University of Iowa are here. And so a, a couple of examples have sprung to my mind. Uh, Steve, you were talking about employees or employers just adding more things to try to to make their employees happy. I'm thinking about, you know, uh, in Silicon Valley, some of these big companies that really demand and, and historically have demanded so much of their employees' time and energy. And so they make the workplace fun. You know, <laughs> they add in all of these great things at the office, seemingly with the, uh, the goal in mind that the employees never leave. But I mean, that that in and of itself can lead to burnout, right? 
You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because my colleagues and I just published a study. And what we did was we really reviewed what the research knows about what we call the work life or work leisure blending. And so, yeah, you talk about Silicon Valley and you talk about what well, we have on site dry cleaners and we have on site childcare, but we also have on site basketball courts or we have on site gardening and all these different things that kind of incorporate everyday non work life into the, into the, uh, you know, into, into work life essentially. Um, you know, the research is really out on the benefits of that. In some cases, we see some real benefits from it that employees perceiving that the organization has their best interests in mind um, and that they're really trying to create uh, an environment where they where employees feel supported. But on the other hand, we see the opposite effects and we see that that people are cynical about those, that they can feel um, th that they can certainly feel that without any clear boundaries uh, around work and non-work, that it becomes really exhausting. So there's more research to be done in that way in terms of how these types of traditional non-work things that get incorporated into work can be structured and can be communicated about in such a way so that they can have positive effects rather than negative effects. My experience just in talking with organizations though, and this goes back to some of the discussion of the burnout, is that they tend to implement some of these things. For example, I think about a I think about a company that I once did some work with who installed a rock wall in their, a rock climbing wall in their organization. And the CEO in particular was really, really excited about this because he thought this would be a great way for employees to get out and be able to talk and be able to do something fun. But the problem was, is that he was a rock climbing enthusiast, but a lot of the people in the organization weren't. And so it kind of was looked at as a pet project of sorts by the CEO. And so then people started getting really cynical about, well, whatever resources you're expending towards those, can't you do that to reduce some of these hindrances? Or can't you pay us a little bit more? Or can't you give us some kind of perks? So there can be a double-edged sword around it for sure. Well, I do think it's interesting if you've been following the news, these same tech companies, one after the other, have now started announcing work from anywhere policies where they're going in the exact opposite direction. Instead of having you come and stay on our campus that has all of its perks and enjoyable things, now we just want you to work from anywhere. So it's interesting to see this drastic pivot that's happened just in the last two years. Yeah, well, and I think there's so much to be talked about with work from home culture and how that's developing. And maybe we'll hit on that a little bit, but I think we could do a whole separate show about that as well. And Ian, you mentioned um, autonomy being something that, you know, giving an employee more autonomy might be a way to help them deal with burnout. And I think that that, that probably could go against the instincts of a lot of managers where they see, okay, this employee's having a problem. I want to do more. Um, tell me more about that and, and maybe the danger of micromanagement. Yeah. It, um, you're right that we have a natural tendency uh, away from giving others autonomy, even though we want it for ourselves. Um, so that's probably helpful to remember, right? Um, and, you know, Jeff Pfeffer, he is a, you know, renowned management professor at Stanford University, and he calls autonomy the one crucial element that every workplace should have. And so he thinks that most companies are underestimating the importance of giving employees more autonomy. And so, yeah, you're fighting a natural human tendency 
to want to take more control rather than give away control. And um, it's, it's similar to the tendency we all have to think of solving problems by adding more things instead of taking things away. In fact, there was a fascinating study published in Nature where they had an experiment with people building little bridges out of Legos that were imbalanced. And they had a bucket of Legos sitting next to it. And they saw how many people solved the imbalance of the bridge by adding a Lego to match one leg to the other versus those that subtracted a Lego from the other leg to make them even just a little bit shorter bridge. And the vast majority were just adding things, adding things. And so I think that we're always fighting this tendency. Managers feel like, okay, we need to add a new policy rather than think about what's the last time you took a policy away. And so I think if we just recognize our natural tendency to want to add more, to control more, and just flip that and challenge ourselves to think, what can I take away first? What can I subtract? What can I give over to employees and, and give them control over? And this is largely a process of experimenting. You, no one knows perfectly how to make things work. They've got to try. And so this past fall with my own students, I teach 600 students every year, introduction to management. I did an experiment in giving my students total autonomy in terms of how they attend class. I, I had a no limits on in-person attendance. I live streamed the class over Zoom and then I archived the recording and I just told the students, I don't care how you attend, I just care that you attend and it's your choice. Come in whichever way suits you best and that is most advantageous for your studying and learning. And I let them choose and I just did an experiment in giving my students total autonomy about how they participated in class. How did it go? Well, it was really interesting. At the beginning of the semester, I would say 75% of my students were in person and then 25% were doing the remote options. And then the later it got into the semester, that flipped. By the time November and December rolled around, I think students found it a lot harder to get out of bed and come to campus when it's getting cold and dark outside. And so they uh, used uh, more remote options towards the end of the semester. But interestingly, there was no change at all in my students' performance. Their performance was exactly what I would have seen in a regular semester when I had all in-person attendance. And it was exactly the same as I had during my first COVID semester when I had all remote attendance. So it was an interesting experiment for me to see. I gave my students autonomy and they benefited from that. And there was no change in my students' learning or productivity, at least on an aggregate level in the class. It's fascinating. And, and we only have a moment here before we get to a break, Stephen, but you were talking earlier about, okay, you know, as a manager saying, hey, keep a list of the things that, that get in your way, telling your manager that they're micromanaging you and they need to do less. That's a pretty hard thing to share. That's a really difficult conversation. Um, but it also, if managers are making themselves vulnerable enough to ask the question, my always suggestion is take it, take it while you can. Um, but I think the more important part of Ian's uh, comment there too is at the core, we think about control or autonomy as a psychological resource. It enables us to be able to effectively meet the demands that um, that can 
take us to burnout unless we have, again, the kind of this replenishment of or at least full level of psychological resources. And so that helps us uh, to have that level of control. And we will pick that up after the break. I am talking with Stephen Courtright and Ian Crawford of the Tippie College of Business at the University of Iowa. We are talking about burnout. This is Talk of Iowa. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. You're listening to an archive edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe. We are talking about burnout, what it is, what we know about it, and how to combat it. Stephen Courtright is here. He is Henry B. Tippy, research professor and director of executive education at the Tippy College of Business at the University of Iowa. He will be teaching a virtual masterclass on recognizing and addressing John burnout on Wednesday from noon to one through the Tippy College of Business. Ian Crawford is also here, associate professor of management and entrepreneurship at the Tippy College of Business at the University of Iowa. And he recently published a study on burnout in the Journal of Organizational Science. So, all right, we were talking before the break about the importance of autonomy and on the flip side, the importance of of not micromanaging your employees. Um, What are some of the other pieces of advice, Steve, that you give to managers or to organizations to, to really look at in their structure, to see what they can do to help their employees deal with burnout. So what I always advise empl- uh, advise managers is to think about that, what we talked about earlier is that definition of burnout or the underlying cause of burnout. It's when demands exceed psychological resources. And so how is it that we can address burnout and prevent it? It's through by watching and demands, it's efficacy, support, and resources. I kind of call this, and, and this will be highlighted in the uh, in in the master class, the desk model. And it's just a framework that basically allows us to be able to see what are the types of actions we can take in response to this. And it really kind of falls along those four dimensions. Can we change the demands, reduce some demands uh, in the workplace? Uh, can we, are there ways that we can build a sense of efficacy or confidence? For example, can we celebrate small wins? How do we create small wins? How do we really track the wins that we have? We can also build uh, networks of social support. We can do that on an individual level, but organizations can facilitate the kind of social support that can help replenish psychological resources. And then going earlier, we talked about the control. Is there more control uh, that we can give to our employees that really we may, as Ian pointed out earlier, may be hesitant to do because of our own natural tendencies to want to control, but what kind of control can we give them? And so we talked earlier about this dialogue that we have to have with employees and in order to help them to to prevent and, and address burnout, and I typically find that uh, that most of the things that people comment on fall along these four dimensions that I mentioned: the demands, efficacy, support, control, and that our subsequent actions can really be taken to do though to to around those four dimensions as well. 
I think the power in that framework is that we're not just addressing the symptoms. So for example, we can see, oh, people are feeling really exhausted at work. So what we really need to give them is paid time off, more paid time off. Or we need to, as we talked about earlier, build more recreation in our facilities, in our, in our organization. But that doesn't solve the underlying problem. That just can sometimes address the symptoms. And so then organizations are wondering, why isn't this working? It's because we're not addressing the root of the problem. Well, and that is the number one piece of advice that I think anybody who's feeling burnt out gets is take a vacation, take some time away, which is, it's good advice. Generally, we all should take vacations and take time away from work, but that doesn't fix burnout, right? Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, there's a whole entire research literature on vacations. And what they basically find, first of all, one of the interesting things in that is that anticipating vacation brings about more positive emotions than the actual vacation itself. So one of the things I always tell people is after you finish a vacation, be planning the next one so that the vacation effects are more sustained. Um, but the other thing we do know is that the, the vacation effects generally are short-lived. Because if you can imagine the psychological detachment, that's some, a term that we use in the research on this, is helpful. But if you're going right back to the same demands and without the same resources, really all you've done is you removed yourself temporarily from it. And in fact, the research is really interesting on this, that sometimes in that sense, vacations can even have a negative effect. If you have a time away from it and then you're thrust back into it, suddenly you're seeing even more of the, uh, you know, the difference between how you feel on vacation, when you do have more control, when you do have social support, or when you feel that sense of efficacy that you're at, and the demands are different or non-existent sometimes, depending on what you're doing for vacation. And that can actually make the vacations have a negative effect on productivity and burnout. And so, yeah, vacations are not the only answer. I would not suggest that organizations reduce vacations, but I certainly wouldn't say that that is the solution to it. It's a Band-Aid is what it is. I want to talk more about this uh, network of social support. Um, one of the things that you warn against is the manager trying to play therapist and, and fulfill that role. So tell me more about that problem. Again, I mean, that, that could go against a natural impulse of, hey, I really want to listen to this employee. I really want to get involved and help them. Yeah, I can jump in there if that helps. We do have this ethos where we want people to be their authentic selves and bring their whole selves to work. And that can be tempting then to, as the manager, try to treat the whole person at work and accidentally or in, unintentionally turn into a therapist. And I don't know how many of our managers are licensed and trained therapists. And so it's important to have you know, necessary conversations, but there's actual research that shows that if you want to induce stress in somebody, you have them disclose something personal to someone that they aren't close with or who evaluates their work. Um, and so a manager can unintentionally be achieving the opposite aim for employees who aren't comfortable disclosing those things with their manager. And so I think it's probably a better stance to be in where you have regular task-focused check-ins with your employees where you can get a hint of things aren't going well. And if, if there are reasons for that that lie outside the workplace, you might help facilitate access to professional licensed and trained therapists rather than becoming one yourself. Well, and I can imagine an employee not only might feel under stress, but they might worry that if they disclose 
too much that could actually be held against them in in the future with this organization. And Steve, you wanted to jump in there. Yeah, I was going to say that one of the things that supervisors can really leverage too is the power of the peer network for individuals. And so we learn from a lot of research that people's behavior at work is so largely influenced uh, by their peers. And so when we talk about social support, it's not just all on managers. In fact, managers would really put themselves in a difficult position if they were at kind of that nexus of one's social support. That's a lot of work. Uh, and and uh, and as we mentioned earlier, untrained work <laughs> that they're oftentimes doing, but they can set up a culture and they can set up different processes and systems, formal and informal, for people to draw on their peers. And so the peers can be a really really important source of social support. But I think to go back to what Ian said and just to build on that a little bit, especially in a more virtual workforce that we have now. This becomes increasingly difficult because we don't have the same water cooler conversation, so to speak, that we did before. And in fact, the research on virtual teams shows that people are much more attuned to task-oriented elements than relational-oriented elements when they're working in virtual teams. So sometimes when we think about social support, we think about really relational things like friendships, for example. But it might be that actually the social support just comes in the form of conversations. Are we having conversations with other people about, as we talked about earlier, things that are getting in the way of their performance? Are we facilitating opportunities for people to talk with and collaborate with their peers on projects so that they overcome some of the risks of isolation that come, especially again, in remote virtual environments? So to Ian's point earlier, task-oriented conversations can be a really great form of social support in organizations. It doesn't just have to be about being a therapist or being even a buddy or what, or what have you. Well, and uh, I think, again, that points to something that a lot of organizations have tried to discourage. Oh, that's, that's time-wasting, that, that kind of relationship building. But as much as it may look like maybe people are wasting a little bit of time, the benefits might be might be there long term, right? Um, before we run out of time, I, I do want to ask both of you, you, of course, study organizations, you advise organizations, you advise managers, you're, you're looking at the people who want to prevent the burnout among their employees, although, of course, managers can also experience burnout and and often do. Um, Let's talk about the individuals who are in this situation. So, you know, we talked about kind of trying to define it. If somebody listening to that was saying, yeah, my gosh, that really sounds like me. You guys are not trained therapists either, and (laughs) I'm not asking you to be, but give, give individuals some advice. If you're in that position, what can you do? Um, I can jump in. Um, We definitely don't have all the answers. And maybe I'll conclude with a thought after I share this simple tip, which is the University of Iowa has actually put together a resource called mentalhealth.uiowa.edu. And there's some great links on a page about um, understanding and managing burnout um, that would be really useful to go to. And it's You know, it's difficult to understand on an individual basis what to do to deal with your personal burnout. And a lot of it has to do with a little bit of your own experimentation of what you should do and what works for you and what doesn't. So I would I would consider that a resource to draw on to begin with. If you think about burnout and what to do with it, I referred earlier to this desk model that I take organizations through. You talked about some of the advising we do. 
while a lot of the, the things that we do with demands or an efficacy or support or control that I mentioned earlier, there are things that organization and managers need to do. There's also certain things that individuals can do in each of those things. So for example, when it comes to the efficacy part, if that's a psychological resource, which research shows that it is, is really vital for helping prevent and address burnout, are there certain things we can do to create small successes in our day? There's some really in, interesting emerging research looking at how we establish routines. And if we have kind of a routine where we find initial success with at the beginning of the day, it can have a carryover effect during the day. Um, we can also, I have a colleague who keeps a done list. So oftentimes we have a to-do list and that to-do list keeps just exponentially growing, but she keeps a done list to show what she's accomplished and reviews over that. That's just a very small, simple strategy for managing our own burnout. So each of these different resources, we can have a role in replenishing as well as the organization. And so I oftentimes will just take individuals through that model and say, where do you have control to do this, to replenish this resource here, manage this demand here? And oftentimes we're able to find a lot of individual solutions in addition to some of the organizational solutions. One other thing I wanted to mention too, Charity, you said this, is that we oftentimes think about burnout as an employee problem. And these darn managers are causing burnout. My research has actually been on managerial burnout. And what we actually find is during the pandemic, we have some colleagues here at Iowa who've done some of this research, is that burnout is actually most acute among managers themselves, especially in an age of remote work. We're finding that for managers, managing remote teams is far more exhausting than managing in-person teams. So any of these suggestions are not just for employees and how they dialogue with their managers, but how managers manage their own selves too and work with with their managers uh, to be able to prevent burnout too. So it's not just for just for individual contributors; it's for managers as well. Well, and and right now we are in the midst of this great resignation, and, and we see a lot of people changing jobs. We see a lot of opportunities opening up. I heard the statistic the other day that for every job seeker, there are 1.9 jobs available. Of course, that doesn't always line up as far as location and and area of expertise, but uh, it's a it's a kind of a crazy time right now. So, does that? work? I mean, obviously, if you're in a toxic organization and you're really, really unhappy and you're really burned out, you should do something to to leave. But does leaving work to combat burnout? One of the things, it depends on the job that you're going to. It depends on the reasons why you're leaving, too. Um, you know, some people will uh, kind of attribute burnout to the reason why they left, but it may, do, it may be stress. It may just be it may just be stress. And so the understanding that difference between that chronic, really acute level of burnout versus stress is important. Um, and then actually with one of the more interesting trends we're going to be see, we're going to be studying and seeing, I think, in the future is this notion of boomerang employees. And so is the grass really greener on the other side? Was it really burnout that was that was causing the turnover? Was it something else? And this just gets to I think we use the term burnout really loosely sometimes. And so understanding what it is, is as important as to understanding how to prevent it and address.
address it. Well, and of course, Ian, you mentioned the research you were doing, of course, started before the pandemic because burnout is not a new problem. And our lack of work-life balance as individuals, that is not a new problem either, although it does feel like the pandemic just (laughs) set us over a cliff as far as uh, dealing with work-life balance. So I'd love to, in in a minute, 30 seconds each, um, I mean, do you think that that at this point in time, this is something that we're just going to be learning a whole lot about as we're really in uncharted waters? Ian? Yeah, I've, here's my concluding thought that's been helpful for me and how I think about our widespread pandemic of burnout. When I was a boy, my parents took us to Yellowstone National Park, and my most vivid memory from that trip was seeing the blackened tree trunks as far as the eye could see from the wildfires of 1998 that burned 800,000 acres, almost 36% of the park. And I went back to Yellowstone. I've been back three more times, about a decade apart. And what I've witnessed has fascinated me that the first time back, I saw little seedlings of pine trees growing and then more, um, juvenile trees and now Yellowstone is this thriving forest of lodgepole pines as far as the eye can see. And one of the most interesting things I learned was that the pine cones for the lodgepole pines are serotonous, which means they won't release their seeds until the resin sealing them melts. And that only happens in conditions of a forest fire that wipes out all the underbrush and the cones open and then the seeds can be planted in conditions that are good enough for them to bloom. So we we have a, a future of change and hopefully growth is what I hear. We've you had this big pandemic of burnout and I don't know what comes next, but I'm thinking about it in terms of in the coming years and decades, we might see something similarly miraculous. Perhaps we've had enough disruption to our entrenched ways and we're having enough new thinking and perhaps we're establishing new conditions where we can have newer and healthier ways of living and working to grow. I'm Charity Nebbe. You're listening to an archive edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio.